0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Uh, the reading this morning comes from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 and through to verse 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bishop God. Thanks, Hannah. So the first test is passed. We know she can read. <laughs> so it's uh, you can just kind of feel the excitement in the room, can't you? With week one and the semester starting, and uh, just to give you a little, little bit of a glimpse of where you're heading, my experience is you arrive at college lost for words. Because basically, you want to know more about how to define justification, what's ecclesiology and eschatology and where we all heading and all the rest. Yep. And then after a while, you're lost among words because there are so many words we throw at you at college. And then eventually, when you graduate, you can't say anything in less than 20 minutes and you start every sentence with, on the one hand. (laughs) And then when you reach the point of 50-minute answers, we offer you a place on the faculty. (laughs) Now, so there are some risks uh, about being at college, aren't there, along with the great blessings which we hope you'll experience during your time. Um, there are some risks that uh, come with, as I've just described, the kind of replacing of uh, authentic, genuine spiritual experience with the excitement of intellectual endeavor. And that's what we offer you at college, but we also give you a chapel to kind of ground you, as Reese was saying. And one area to focus on while you're at college is uh, personal and corporate prayer. So that's what we've, we're looking at today, the need to continue praying. Yep. Um, so th- the topic of prayer was, it, it kind of goes in waves. In, uh, in my uh, 20s and late teens, there were lots of books about prayer. And I remember compiling a list of things you have to do to get your prayers answered So just to run through them, you have to pray in faith and you can supply verses for all these things. You have to pray according to God's will, with no unconfessed sin, persistently, where two or three are gathered, living considerately with your spouse and in Jesus' name. Yep, so if you tick all the boxes, bingo! You uh, get your prayer answered. That's what I used to think anyway. Well, Acts 12 is actually a case study in answered prayer. I mean, simply put... Uh, Luke could have just cut out all the words and said very briefly, Peter's in prison, the church prayed, God answered and he got set free. That could be it. But the passage teaches us something through the narrative, which is always uh, uh, important to remember, that the Bible doesn't just teach through epistles and sermons, but through the stories and how they're told. And Acts 12 is a great case study in this. Um, I like to tell students the Bible is three things. It's uh, history, so you've got to kind of mind the gap between our day and the first century or earlier. Uh, it's also theology, so you've got to join the dots between different parts of the Bible and in our own day. And it's also literature, so you have to stop and smell the roses. And uh, Acts 12 is a veritable bed of roses. It's amazing how well the story is told, what it emphasises the imagery it uses, the conventions it subverts, the structure, the way we have Herod at the beginning and Herod at the end, that lovely inclusio, so you know it's over. So, what do we learn from Acts 12 about prayer to encourage us in our prayers? Is there another box to tick? Well, uh, there are at least three things to learn. And uh, if you've got the Bible open, we'll be looking at it. Uh, So the first thing is that desperate times call for earnest or desperate prayer. Uh, Forget Charles Dickens, it was just the plain, the worst of times. And the first five verses emphasise this at every point. Everything that's said about what's happening makes you think, oh my goodness, this is a terrible situation. Read verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some of those who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, the Herods in the New Testament put, uh, put the wind up every New Testament scholar. There are four mentioned, and uh, I find it very difficult to remember which one's which. I'm going to ask Mike a question in a moment just to put him on the spot and see if he's uh, on top of this. So there's four Herods. There's Herod the Great, he's the guy who rebuilt the temple. So he's the, the great, uh, um, he's kind of Lachlan Macquarie, if you know about the early settlement, built all sorts of stuff. And in Matthew, he's responsible for the murdering of the infants. So he's not a great guy, yeah. Then you get Herod Antipas, who um, is responsible for beheading John the Baptist. And Herod Antipas is the Herod that uh, Jesus appears before in the Gospels at his trial. Then you get the one we've got here, Herod Agrippa I. So you've got father, um, son, and then grandson. Uh, Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he seems to be a chip off the old block because, as we've just seen, he he murders uh, James, which isn't a great start. But there is a fourth Herod, Herod Agrippa II, and uh, he appears in Acts, and he, he actually looks a bit better because in the later chapters of Acts, you'll remember, Herod Agrippa II gets uh, Paul on trial. Paul appeals to him and says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that. And uh, he lets him keep going for a while, and we're not sure what happens after that. So my question for Mike is, Herod the Tetrarch, which one is that? And the gospel, looked at it being Herod Antipas. Well done, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, as I said, the first few verses really put everyone at, at um, it's a terrible situation, and we just don't know how on earth the church is going to get out of this. So have a look at with me. So in verse two, Herod, uh, which one is it again? Herod Agrippa the first had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So that's not a great start. Uh, When he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter too. So he kind of got a boost in his poll ratings that week and like any good politician, he thought, yeah, we'll we'll carry on with that. That seems to be working well. Uh, This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Again, the details are important here, aren't they? They emphasize just how bleak the plight is for the church and specifically for Peter. And here's his intention Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And then, verse 6 the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentry stood at the guard, uh, stood guard at the entrance. Now, there's one glimmer of hope mentioned, isn't there, in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Desperate times call for desperate prayer. Now, interestingly, the word desperate is used in different parts of the Bible, just a few times, actually. In Luke 22, Jesus sweats great drops of blood, and prays earnestly, same word that we have here, so earnest prayer. Uh, And then uh, if you look at the Greek Old Testament, uh, Jonah 3, verse 8, the Ninevites prayed earnestly to avoid God's judgment. So I think earnest prayer is an interesting one. is another box to tick. Um, Often our prayers I wouldn't describe as earnest. I'd say they're polite, they're eloquent, they're measured, they're kind of casual, Lord please do this if you get around to it, no hurry, uh, it's up to you. Yep, that's the kind of tenor of our prayers. And very often we kind of evaluate each other's prayers. I listen to the prayers in chapel and think, "Ah, oh, wasn't bad. Could have had a bit more of this and a little bit less of that, but, uh, you know, it's okay. Well, the prayers in the Bible are very often desperate. This is a, a, this is a theme of prayer in the Bible. Abraham pleads with God for Sodom. Lord, if we can find 50 righteous, how about 40, how about 30, how about 10? Yep. And Moses, uh, when God is threatening to kill the people, says, turn from your fierce anger, relent, do not bring disaster on your people. You can feel the intensity of the prayer. Hannah prays in similar ways. David prays frank, insistent prayers. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto you when my heart is overwhelmed. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long? How long? Four times. How long will you forget me? Forever. So, friends, are you desperate about something? I think uh, one of the things I've noticed about getting a little older is that uh, my life is uh, really characterized by quiet desperation. (laughs) So there are so many things to be desperate about. I'm desperate about my children. I'm desperate about uh, Nat's parents, mine have already died. I'm desperate about friends who have terminal illnesses, desperate about the college in all sorts of ways like you wouldn't believe and I won't tell you. Um, I'm desperate about the country, desperate about the world. So we should really be praying desperately, earnestly, ardently, insistently. And there there are cultural differences From an Austrian background, I'm kind of uh, calm and collected, don't like to have too much emotion. Um, Some other cultures express emotion a great deal more. So we should uh, be careful here. But nonetheless, if you're desperate about something, this passage surely teaches us that desperate times call for desperate prayer. Well, did God answer? Uh, The answer, of course, is yes. We've had a bit of a spoiler with the reading. Uh, And uh, God does answer. But the second thing to learn about prayer in this passage actually undermines some of which I've just gone through. God acts when we pray, but often in spite of the quality of our prayers. Because have a look at the passage with me. The way Luke narrates this, he makes it very clear that it was quite a surprise that Peter got out of prison. In verses 8 to 10, Peter's the kind of reluctant rescuee. Uh, The angel says to Peter, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing, was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So he kind of comes out benumbed. And uh, it's hardly like uh, Peter thinks at last, I knew they'd answer my prayer, the Lord would answer my prayers. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate, leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. This is really a miraculous answer to prayer. But it's not the quality of their prayers that achieved it. Now, we see this even more when we get to the scene with Rhoda, the uh, slave girl, the servant girl. Yep, is Scott here? Yes, there's Scott. Scott has a brilliant book, Raised from Obscurity which he wrote with uh, Greg Forbes from MST, which goes through the female characters in Luke and Acts. And when you read Scott's uh, few pages on Rhoda, it's very interesting. What what he says there is that typically in the ancient world, servant girls, one, were not named in the narratives, yep, and two, they were thought to be really dumb, and three, they were usually the butt of the jokes, okay? Okay. Now, at the beginning, you think, well, maybe that's where we're heading with this because Rhoda comes and uh, what does she say? Where am I? Uh, Help me. 14. 14, thank you. Uh, When she recognised Peter's voice at the door, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it. So it's kind of a silly (laughs) thing to do. It's a comedic moment, isn't it? And uh, Rhoda really is so excited. And she comes back and says, Peter's at the door. So at that point in the context of the literary conventions of the ancient world, everyone's thinking, yeah, typical typical servant girl. Yep, but look what happens. They say to her, you're out of your mind, they told her, and she kept on insisting that it was so. It must be his angel, they said. Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So the truth here is that the butt of the joke is not Rhoda, it's the apostles. It's the church. And it's a beautiful moment where the conventions of the ancient world are subverted. The world is turned upside down. And we could think back about earlier parts in Acts and Luke where uh, the apostle quotes um, uh, Joel 2, my spirit will be poured on all people, including uh, uh, female servants and male servants. So here we have the wonderful um, early church community which did not observe the social conventions of their day. We have a passive Peter, an ineffective, preoccupied church, which un- underscores the direct intervention of God. God and God alone has acted, almost in spite of their prayers, because they don't take many of the boxes, do they? They're not believing, otherwise they wouldn't be so surprised. Now, don't get me wrong. Their prayers, however imperfect, were the means of God rescuing Peter. So it's not like it was irrelevant that they prayed, but it's not um, so much unbelieving prayer as disbelieving prayer. I don't even know if that distinction still works in, uh, uh, in your young minds. But in, back in my day, <laughs> unbelief was when I can't believe something Sorry, unbelief is when I don't believe something. And disbelief is when something so remarkable has happened, I just can't believe it's happened. Yep. Does that still work for anyone here? Hands up. This would probably be an age test. (laughs) Yes, just a few. Yes, thank you. Yes. So what we have here is disbelieving prayer. So that's the other box to tick, friends. You pray to the God who will blow you away with his answers. And that's made very clear in verse 17. How do we? How, how is it that Peter gets uh, uh, rescued? The Lord had brought him out of prison. Everything in the passage underscores that point. So desperate times call for desperate prayer. God acts in spite of the quality of our prayers. The third thing we see here is the most important. To whom we pray is more important than how we pray. So uh, we must avoid the kind of box-ticking prayer. Uh, prayer uh, doesn't have a recipe with secret ingredients like KFC. Um, at Ridley, we teach you to analyse things and to dissect them, don't we? As I preach, some of the faculty are thinking, oh, this wasn't a bad intro, but the transitions were a bit weak <laughs> and uh, a bit too repetitive, really, and uh, it's typical drawing attention to himself and yeah so so you you kind of get used to analyzing things so rather than going to church as a follower of Christ needing rebuking correcting encouraging we teach you to go to church as a critic kind of sitting above everything and uh, nodding knowingly Um, that's not a great thing friends so please don't do that and we can start here don't appraise other people's prayers Let's not forget that just as Peter is saved in answer to prayer, James is not. Peter's alive, but James is dead. So earnest prayer is not another box to tick. It's a good thing to do, but there's no secret recipe for prayer. Because when we pray, what we're really doing is seeking to align ourselves with God's will. And the sovereignty of God is not so much an impediment to prayer, but an encouragement to pray. We can pray knowing that God will do what God wills. And he uses our prayers. So that's uh, something to explore in your theology class. Uh, We pray, even when we pray earnestly, we realise that the fight against God is futile. And we learn that at the end of the passage. See what happens to Herod. So come back to Herod. Uh, Herod proves himself to be a piece of work again uh, uh, because... He orders that the guards be executed. That's a kind of yikes moment. And then in verse 24, he's met with this uh, group and uh, we hear that the word of God continued to spread and flourish, but Herod himself starts out frightening, ends up frightful because he's struck down and eaten by worms. Now, this is one of the few places in the book of Acts, there are a few, when other 1st century historical sources corroborate what we read. So Josephus, the 1st century Jewish historian, has a book of antiquities and he actually covers this very scene in more depth than Luke does. It's a beautiful moment. So let me read you briefly. Um, So basically uh, it mentions that Agrippa, um, Herod Agrippa I, left four children, Berenice, uh, Mariamne, Drusilla, not kidding, and a son, Agrippa II, the guy who takes over, he was just 17 at the time. So this is the, uh, this is now why, we ask ourselves, why did they think he was a god rather than uh, a man? Why did they do that? That, that led to his demise. Well, um, Josephus tells us, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theatre early in the morning. There the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently his flatterers cried out, uh, you are a God, be merciful to us. So it's exactly what we've got here. And then in the very end, there's a bit more about his death. It says a severe pain arose in his belly striking him with a most violent intensity. So we get a little bit earlier in the scene because what Luke report is what happened after that. Uh, He gets eaten by worms and dies. So it's a great passage, isn't it, friends? So you've got these images of light and open gate, the terrible demise of Herod, and they convey this message that the power of God over human frailty and opposition in in support of the progress of the word. The word will go forward. That's Acts in a nutshell. Acts is all about the mighty acts of God contending with forces hostile to the Christian gospel. So it's a great encouragement to us today. Many parts of the world, that's still the case. And in Australia, there are kind of uh, a few hints here and there that there's more opposition than there once was. The key to prayer is not how you pray, it's to whom you pray. We should pray to the King who tolerates no rivals or pretenders to his glory and answers in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. The Bible does not recommend prayers of unbelief, but prayers of disbelief certainly are recommended. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen.